Many of you have asked about attendance and, and Easter, and a lot of you were here. Uh, just so you know, we had over 1,600 people that took part in all of our services through Easter weekend. Uh, but the cool thing is this, is they took about 800 bags of food, and they're returning them now. Um, we're putting them in the trailer, and we're going to take it to the Pueblo Cooperative Care this week. They tell us that we'll give them about six months' worth of food in their inventory that we'll feed families in Pueblo for six months by one weekend here. So thank you, thank you for, for being a part of that and for sharing uh, your resources with those that are in need. Uh, this morning we start a brand new series called Next Steps where we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7. There's the greatest sermon that was preached. It was Jesus' uh, first sermon, if you, kind of, if, if you will. Uh, when he was about ready to start out his earthly ministry, he got all of his disciples together. They, he took them to the Mount of Beatitudes. The Mount of Beatitudes is, is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we were there in, in Israel when we, I, Karen and I took a group in December uh, last year. And uh, we sat on the Mount of Beatitudes, and it's just, you can just see how it's just kind of a natural amphitheater that thousands of people could have sat on the shores. The acoustics were great because it was coming off of the lake and the water and everything. And so we spent just... But here's what frustrates me. I'll just process some stuff real quick. That's okay. Mount of Beatitudes is owned by a church there in Israel. And, and they would let us go in, but if we read from the Bible or we prayed, they were going to charge us extra. I'm serious. So we had to leave our Bibles in, in the van, and, uh, and we couldn't pray out loud. And so, but anyway, I'll get over that. That's just kind of a crazy deal. Anyway, the Mount of Beatitudes is, is a beautiful place. The acoustics are great. Jesus went there, and he began teaching uh, his disciples and teaching the people there. Uh, next step or basic Christianity 101, and even though it's basic Christianity 101, this is some difficult stuff that Jesus talks about. He begins talking about that it's not about the rules and the regulations and, and keeping all of the all the rules and regulations so that the person gets puffed up and they think they're great and, and they're self-sufficient. Jesus was saying, no, it's way deeper than that. It's belief and behavior. It's belief, it's what you believe, and, and belief comes out of your behavior. And so Jesus gathered them around and he began talking to them about that. And basically the, the common theme that runs through Matthew is this, is that we're to live an authentic Christian life, that those that follow Christ are to live their life differently, to act differently, to think differently. Belief and behavior should match. fact is, if you want to know what you really believe, it's how you behave. It's the choices that you make. It's the decisions that we make in life. And Jesus was saying this. Jesus was saying belief and behavior should matter. In other words, that we're not to be thermometers of adjusting to the moral climate of a society or a nation. That you know what? We should be the thermostats. And we should be setting the climate. We should be setting the benchmark. We shouldn't be reacting to it in our life. And, and Jesus was saying that followers of his should live authentic lives to the point that we're men and women of integrity and character to when people come up against us. That boy, we're like magnets to Christianity. That they're not repelled by Christianity because of the way that we live. And they don't see the hypocrisy and all the other stuff that goes on. But they see a genuine life. And all of a sudden, see, my dream for our church is, is not the big numbers. I really don't get that excited about big numbers. You know what I get excited about? Change lives. When people begin getting help and finding peace and finding comfort and finding forgiveness, and they start talking about how their life was changed because of an encounter they had with Jesus Christ. 
That's really and true what it's about. But my dream for a church is not in numbers. To where Fellowship of the Rockies, people who attend Fellowship of the Rockies would be people of integrity and character, authenticity, to where they, they just they live a life that is with integrity to when you meet people in the workplace or school or a neighborhood or wherever that you make Christianity attractive. I mean, you know this, right? You've come up against some people that are Christians and, and it didn't look so attractive because they lived their life the same way that everyone else did. And the Sermon on the Mount has the opportunity, has the possibility not only to change your life, but to change the makeup, the structure of a church. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to just start walking through that. fact is, for the next 12 weeks for sure, maybe longer, we're going to walk through verse by verse of the Sermon on the Mount and just see what God has for us in our time and in our day. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he's talking about Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowds, he did what? He went up to the mountainside, so he led them up the mountainside, and he sat down. Now, something you need to know about their culture is this. Whenever a rabbi, whenever a teacher would sit down, that was great emphasis on what he was about ready to say. They didn't really raise their voice and get loud and, and all this other stuff. They would just, just very simply, just the rabbi would sit down. And in their culture, when a rabbi or teacher would sit down, they knew, that the followers knew that whatever this person was about ready to share, whatever this person was about ready to teach, this is some important stuff that we better not miss. And so Jesus sat down. And he didn't have to tell them to get quiet. All eyes, ears are on him, and he is totally quiet. Or they are, and then he says, and the disciples came to him, so he sat down, they gathered around, and he began to teach them, saying, so what he started walking through was what, what is called Beatitudes. Now listen, I've preached through a series on the Beatitudes, and the first four Beatitudes are basically your relationship to God, the next four Beatitudes are basically your relationship to your fellow man, to relationships that are around you, friends that are around you. Beatitudes is this, it's just the right attitudes that you and I should have in life. That's all it means. And Jesus began teaching, and because I've walked through these and taken one a week, we're going to grab the first four this week, our relationship to God. Next week, we're going to come back and look at our relationship to our fellow man, the people that are around us, and then we're going to start walking through this, this sermon. So when you look at these Beatitudes, you realize that they all start out with the word blessed. Now, blessed means more than happy. It's deeper than that. Blessed means to be the recipient of God's favor in your life. It's not, not necessarily man's favor, but it's being a recipient. When he said blessed, that means being a recipient of his blessing or his favor. It means to be content. It means to have peace in your life. It means to have comfort in your life. So the first thing that Jesus does is he begins telling them, let me tell you, in your life, how you can have peace, how you have content, how you can improve your relationship with me, which should improve your relationship with the relationships around you. These are essential for the the Christian life. In fact is, these aren't, he's not talking to eight different groups of people. He's saying, you know what, every one of them, all eight of these Beatitudes should be present in our life. There's a progression, if you will, when you look at these Beatitudes, that they just kept building on one after another. And Jesus is saying, you know what, each one of us, each one of these Beatitudes should be present in our life. So let's just start out. Verse 3 says this, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now listen, Jesus didn't say blessed are the poor. Jesus loved the poor, and we know he loved the poor. He ministered to the poor. But you need to understand this. God doesn't act, uh, automatically have favor on the homeless or the bankrupt. 
Because Proverbs tells us this. Proverbs tells us sometimes poverty is a result of laziness, drunkenness, gluttony, self-indulgence, pleasure. In fact, as the Bible tells us this, if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. I mean, the Bible says that. And so just because someone's homeless, just because someone's bankrupt, doesn't mean automatically they have God's favor on their life because it, it may have been self-induced. But he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are men and women when they realize they are spiritually bankrupt before God. Blessed are the person that realizes that he is spiritually impoverished, that there is nothing really good in him. They are completely independent and totally dependent on God and God alone for forgiveness of their sins, for eternal life, for peace, and for comfort. There's something, there's something worse than being broke, and that is not knowing you're broke. I mean, there's something worse than being broke. People who have no money and keep buying on credit are in deeper trouble than those who have no money and admit it. And so Jesus was saying the way that you come to him is realize that, man, you're spiritually impoverished. And that was a problem with the Pharisees, right? They kept the rules and the regulations and they were puffed up in the things that they do. And the rules and the rights. And man, they hated their fellow brother. They hated the people around them. They judged them. They were harsh. They were mean. And Jesus says, well, wait a minute. It's way deeper than that. It's an eternal issue. It's, it's belief and behavior. I mean, scripture says that our acts of righteousness are filthy rags before him. And as long as we are proud of our goodness, our good works, our righteousness, our self-sufficiency. Jesus would say, you know what? Man, you're not in God's favor because you don't even realize you need him. Man, you think it's all, about, it's all about you. And when we realize that we are weak and when we realize that we are spiritually bankrupt, he says, boy, that's when God's favor is on you. For me, there's a really strange paradox for the Christian life. And that is the closer that you get to God, the more unworthy you can feel sometimes of His love, His grace, and His acceptance. The Pharisees were the guys that were saying, God, you're lucky to have me on your team. And a strange paradox is this. The more I get to know Him, His righteousness, His grace, His forgiveness, what He's done for me on the cross, I am totally blown away that He's mindful of me. Amen. The closer you get to God, you realize more and more how spiritually impoverished. That's what happened to Isaiah, right, when Isaiah saw God face to face, the first thing he says is, I am totally destroyed. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. He just, he, he started confessing sin. First thing he did when he met God face to face, he realized who he was and who he really was, and he was spiritually bankrupt and impoverished, and he began confessing his sin. Well, the closer you and I get to God, the more aware of how spiritually bankrupt and impoverished we are without him which causes dependency on him. The second beatitude is this, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for, 
for they will be comforted. Now listen, some people misapply this. Uh, some interpret this meaning that if you mourn the loss of a loved one, that you'll be, you'll be comforted, and that's what Jesus was talking about. And, and that's true most of the time in life. If, if, you, if you grieve the loss of a loved one, if, if you grieve and, and hurt, people will comfort you, God will comfort you, God will console you, and over time you will find healing. But you know what? That's not always true. Sometimes people never get over the loss of a loved one. Jacob, when he was told that his son Joseph had, had died, Jacob refused to be comforted by anyone. He refused to be comforted by God. He refused to be comforted by his sons, his family. And he led a miserable life because he refused God's comfort. He refused his family's comfort. Rachel, when she was weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted by God. And though God offers to comfort the brokenhearted, not everyone who mourns receives it. Not everyone who mourns accepts it. Some, some refuse. But Jesus is not talking about mourning the loss of a loved one. He's talking about mourning your sin. It's not enough, is what Jesus is saying, just to say, hey, we're spiritually broken and we're, we're bankrupt and we're spiritually impoverished. He said it goes deeper than that. Well, you got to come to the point to where you're broken. There's so many people that will flippantly say, you know what, I'm a big time sinner. But there's no remorse. Not much changes in their life. And there's no favor or blessing. I mean, it, it, it's really true saying, you know what, I, I know this lifestyle, I know this habit, I know this will, will end up killing me and absolutely doing nothing about it. Scripture tells us over and over that we're to repent from our sin and that we're to, to recognize how much it breaks and just... Well, it breaks the heart of God. That's why when I saw the movie, uh, The Passion, it wiped me out. I mean, first movie I ever sat in and watched all the credits. And it was just because I was like in a daze when I realized the graphic scenes that were in that movie, what my sin cost him. That's why that song that we sing, The Heart of Worship, when it gets to that part that I will never know how much my sin cost him. And Jesus is saying this. Jesus is saying we've got to come to the point to where the mourn our sin and we understand how much it cost him. James 4, 8 and 10 says this, Come near to God and he will come near to you. What a wonderful promise. Wash uh, uh, your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, what? And he will lift you up. I mean, it's the picture of being comforted. Remember when Simon, Simon Peter denied Christ three times, and it says after he denied Christ around the fire, he looked over and he saw the eyes of Jesus. And Jesus looked directly into him, and Simon Peter says he saw the disappointment and the hurt in Jesus' eyes. And it says that Simon Peter went out, and the Scripture says that he wept bitterly. 
That's mourning over your sin. That's being broken over your sin. And then you see after Jesus resurrected in John 21, Jesus came back and he sought Simon Peter out and he restored him over a fish breakfast around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus went to him and said, Simon, Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. You know, belief and behavior. He says, feed my sheep if you love me. I mean, it's the picture of this beatitude that, that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, ask for forgiveness of their sin, and guess what? God will comfort you. I mean, it's a picture of Jesus with Simon Peter. He mourned his sin. He was hurt. He was broken. Jesus is the one that comforted him. Let me ask you, have you ever... Man, have you ever betrayed Christ? And you've been broken over your sin. You have grieved the hurt. Have you ever been so embarrassed about an action or a failure? You didn't even want to go out in public. Have you ever been just sick at your stomach? over something you've done. Maybe you're depressed for days. Do you realize in that process, that sense of guilt that morning helped you to come closer to God in reconciliation? There are so many people so far on the grace and the forgiveness side. Sin no longer means anything to them because I'm just forgiven. And Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who know how much your sin grieves and breaks the heart of God. It's the reason why a lot of people don't ever find release from guilt in their life or forgiveness in their life and they don't feel forgiven because they've never been comforted by God in their sin because they've never come to the point till they understood what it does to him and how it breaks his heart for you Isaiah 57 15 says I live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit that means someone that's broken over their sin it means deep relationship God is talking about this to, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite Jesus promises this that when we sin, when we blow it, I, I think this is so cool in, in Jesus' initial sermon. He was telling them, guys, you're going to blow it. Guys, you're going to sin. You're not perfect. You're going to sin. But here's the deal. If you will mourn that, if you will mourn that, if you will confess that, if you will repent, if you'll change your behavior, you will be comforted in life. And God is a perfect and a compassionate Father. And He's sympathetic to the brokenhearted. King David experienced that when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. In Psalms 32 and other Psalms, he writes about that and writes about God restored the joy of his salvation and what that meant. Psalms 32, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is he, is he whose transgressions are forgiven. Talk about being comforted when you mourn your sin and your failure. Uh, whose sins are covered. And watch this. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And in whose spirit 
is no deceit. In other words, he says the pressure is gone, the guilt is gone. He mourned the life. He now has, or he mourned the sin, he now has peace, and he has comfort. The next beatitude says this, and it may be the one that we understand the least. He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now listen, what do you think of when you think of a, a meek person? You think of a wimp, right? A sissy or whatever. You think of someone that lets, that, they're just like a doormat. They allow anybody and everybody to run over them. They never stand up for their rights. They never really say anything. They're not a leader. They're not assertive. Fact is, I am willing to bet if someone walked up to you and, and says to you, you're the meekest person I've ever met, you would not take that as a compliment. Because we don't truly understand what it means and what Jesus is saying by this term, that the meek will inherit the, the earth. Meekness is not being timid. Meekness is not being a doormat. Meekness is not being indecisive and, and, and not being a leader. Meekness means this in the Greek. It means great strength under control. That's all it means. Meekness is this, is great strength under control. It, they use this term for thoroughbred horses and horses that, that they would take that were just wild and rebellious and, and, and uh, uh, were just wild out in the, the field and they would, they would catch those and they would bring those in and they would, would break them and then before long they could put a bit, a small bit in the horse's mouth and a rider on the back and even though this horse was strong and, and a strong animal with great strength, with a bit in his mouth and a rider on the back, that horse with his great strength would submit to the authority of the bit and the rider. That's all it is. I mean, and through that, by the horse submitting that, they can win great races, as we see in our day. They could be very, very productive. And meekness means this. Meekness means great strength, but under control. And when Jesus said this, blessed is the meek. He's saying, blessed is the man or the woman that submits their will to me. Blessed is the man and the woman that will let me guide them, that will let me lead them. Jesus is saying it's not enough just to admit our spiritual bankruptcy before him, shed a few tears over sin. I mean, we've seen that, right? We've seen public figures, whether they're pastors, whether they're politicians, get up in a lot of tears and confess sin and everything, and, and no th nothing changes on the other end of that. Nothing changes in their life. That's why 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. In other words, this, there's two types of sorrow. There's two types of people that, 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 that walk through this process. Godly sorrow is this. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance is this, a, a change of thought that leads to a change of behavior. That's all repentance means. Fact is, if you want to know if someone's really sorry for their sins, if they're really sorry for what they did, their behavior totally changes. In Corinthians, Paul is saying that this, he says, godly sorrow brings, brings repentance that leads to salvation. In other words, you're, you're comforted. And it leaves, watch this, leaves no regret. The regret is taken away. The guilt is taken away when you're able to mourn your sin and to repent. It leads to a change of action. But, what he says, worldly sorrow just brings death. I mean, I'm just sorry you're upset. I'm just sorry I got caught. I'm just sorry I'm walking through this situation with you. I mean, I can't believe you're so mad. I can't believe you're responding like this. And there's no brokenness. 
And guess what? Their actions. You want to know if someone's really sorry for what they did? And look at their actions. See, meekness means this. Meekness means with great strength, great personality, surrender your will to, to God. And a meek person isn't, their life isn't determined by their desires, it's determined by the Word of God. A meek person, their life isn't determined by their circumstances. It's determined by God and the Word of God. The belief of a meek, meek person is not distracted by what is politically correct or popular or taken popularity polls. It's by God and the Word of God. The attitude of the meek person isn't decided in their circumstances. It's decided by the Word of God. And meekness is a spirit that submits to God regardless of the opinion of the world. Now listen, I knew this is something we really don't understand. And I prayed and prayed in a way to illustrate this. And uh, the only way I know to illustrate it, and God showed me a lot through this example in my life, and it just comes right out of my life. But Karen and I, Karen's my wife, and we have this dog that is like the most rebellious, mean-spirited, strong-willed, nasty-spirited, demon-possessed animal God ever created. <laughs> Molly... Man, Molly is anything but meek. And I tell you what, no matter how I've tried with this dog, I've tried positive reinforcement, I've tried negative reinforcement, I've tried negative reinforcement with consequences, I've tried being extra nice to this dog, I've tried to ignore this dog, and anything that I've done with this dog just absolutely has not worked. This dog loves Karen and hates me. I mean, I'm serious. I mean... I, I cannot walk in our house when Karen's there. If, I'm the, if Karen's not there, a dog care less. I never see it. But if Karen's there, I walk in our house. That dog meets me at the door, barking so loud. If I'm on a cell phone, I have to get off the cell phone. I mean, the dog is like going nuts. I have been bitten by this dog that I pay to feed. I mean, I, I give it shelter. I pay for its food. I pay for, you know, haircuts. I pay for everything. And this dog is like the nasty, meanest. Listen, I can't even hug, kiss my wife without repercussions from the dog. The dog starts barking uncontrollably. We can't even hear each other talk. If I hug her, if I kiss her goodbye, this dog goes. Fact is, if I start heading to the couch where she's sitting to tell her goodbye, this dog gets up from wherever it's at, sits in her lap, is going ballistic. I've been bit while kissing my wife. I've been, he's grabbed my clothes. It's tugged at it. This morning, Dwayne called me as I was on my way to church. I was telling Karen goodbye. And he's like, oh my gosh, nobody should go through that. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I go through this two or three times a day. I mean, it's nuts. And, and I tell you what, I'm just telling you. When that dog dies and goes to doggy hell, <laughs> it's gone there. I'm a pastor. God reveals these things to me. <laughs> when that dog goes to doggy hell, that'll be a day of freedom for me. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the other night, the other night, Karen went to bed before me. I was up studying, and so I came to bed. I go in our room. Molly is on our side of the bed laying on my pillow. I'm like, move, and the dog starts growling. I literally, 
Karen woke up to me holding the dog and the dog barking uncontrollably trying to bite me while I'm trying to place her in another area of the house. I've tried everything. But when I go into the kitchen to fix some food or eat dinner, that dog turns into the meekest dog you've ever seen. It runs. It gets so close to me. I'm eating. And it does, if I don't feed it and it doesn't think I can see it, then it'll back up and get on its hind legs and look at me and make some noises and try to get my attention. And so, you know, um, I look at those eyes and then I feel sorry for it. So I start giving it food and I talk to it about going to doggy hell and it's not, it's not too late. <laughs> That's what pastors do. I mean, you know, and so... So I'm feeding it and I'm telling Molly, I says, you know what, Molly, if you were meek like this all the time, if you acted like this all the time, me and you would be best friends. I mean, if you acted like this, we would just be the best of friends. We'd get along. I mean, I, I, I would pet you. I would take care of you. And, and we could just have a great relationship here. And, and here's what I've learned is as soon as the food ends, that dog goes back to the nasty, mean-spirited, demon-possessed, animal God has ever created. Here, here's what God showed me through that. God said, Charlie, sometimes you've been Molly in your life. Sometimes you've lived a life like Molly. You've been strong-willed, you've been nasty, you've been mean. You wouldn't follow me. You said, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to handle this situation my way. I'm going to take care of this situation. And then, Charlie, when there were problems in your life, when you got hungry, you would get so close to me. And you're doing everything to get my attention. And because I'm a compassionate God and compassionate Father, I fed you. I took care of you. I comfort you. And then when the food ran out, or you got your stomach full, you went back. And we do that, right? I mean, if we're honest, we've all had Molly experiences in our life. Where we make those promises about, God, you get me out of this mess. I'll go to church every week for the rest of my life. I'll give. I'll behave. I'll change. Then we get our stomach full and God takes care of us. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we become Molly again. In fact, as you see that all through the Old Testament with the children of of Israel. And Jesus was telling his disciples, blessed peace and contentment you will have when you mourn your sin. It's such a cool promise. Because I'll comfort you. I'll take away the regret. I'll take away the hurt. I'll take away the guilt. 
I'll take away the pain. Blessed are the meek. Hardest thing for you to do if you're strong-willed, type-A personality, a leader, is to submit your authority, your will to Him. I know. The danger of life is this. You just get good at what you're doing. Then you feel like you don't need Him anymore. Chew. That's why He said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that know they're spiritually bankrupt and they're totally dependent upon Him regardless of their success, regardless of what they walk through in life. The next one is this, is, is, is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. I mean, the question for you and I this morning is, what, man, what are you hungry for? What do you thirst for? What do you desire? What dominates your mind and what you think about, your fantasies, your desire? If you took out your calendar and your checkbook, what would it say about your priorities of life? In fact, is you want to know your priorities of life? It's where you spend your time. It's where you spend your money. Are you hungry for popularity? Are you hungry for success? Are you hungry for hobbies, for wealth? Status, sex, pleasure? I mean, what drives you? But Jesus says that we're blessed when we hunger and thirst for him. It's not that any of those... It's about living a life to where you understand that, boy, you're spiritually bankrupt and you have an appetite for Him. Is, and the, the older I get, the, the, the more I'm learning that, you know, you acquire a taste for different foods than you had when you were a child. I mean, there was, as a child, there were some foods that I would eat and didn't really like them. But as an adult, I've de developed an appetite for them. And same is true in the spiritual life. When you become a Christian and you're, and you're young in the faith, you may not desire reading Scripture and worship and all those other things. But he says, as you mature, you should develop a desire for them. Psalms 42, 1 and 2 says, As the deer pants for, uh, for the streams of water, so my soul pants. In other words, desires for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? I mean, he was thirsting after righteousness. And, and a Christian has to thirst after righteousness. And, because he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. It's not true of the world. The world just offers empty calories. It's like eating Chinese food. You're hungry then, within three hours. And you can never get enough. I mean, you just never get enough. That's why this promise is so, so powerful, because he says, when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, when you hunger and thirst after me, you'll be filled. Amen. I mean, you'll... Proverbs 13, 25, the righteousness eat till their heart's content, but the stomach of the wicked, they go hungry. No matter how much they... Remember basketball player Kobe Bryant that at the height of his career, he made, personal, he, made, he made headline news because of his personal life. Uh, he had a beautiful wife. He had fame. He had fortune. He had a beautiful child. He had more than one house. He had everything that the world had to offer, but that wasn't enough. And he cheated on his wife. He had an affair on his wife, and he was accused of much, much more. 
And then a news conference that they had uh, that was covered by ESPN and some others that, that he stood up with a bank of, of, of microphones in his face and cameras and sports reporters and with tears in his eyes, he confessed his affair and asked for his wife's forgiveness. Remember that? And then he bought his wife to help her get over it. It was a $4 million diamond ring. Would that help you get over it? Don't, don't answer that. But No. And you know, as I listened to that news conference and read Sports Illustrated and some others, it just hit me that no matter how much you have of this world, no matter how much you feed on this world's pleasures, it will always leave you wanting more. It'll never be enough. And Jesus was laying it out and he said, hey, I, and I just got to tell you, this world's going to offer you cheap substitutes. You'll never be filled. I'll tell you what will fill you. Thirst after righteousness. I mean, it was Jesus who uh, said, what does it profit a man? What if it profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus and and they came to a fork in the road. It was after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and it was an unsettling time for them. They came to a fork in the road and Jesus joined them, but they didn't know it was Jesus. And so Jesus began walking with them and he could tell they were down and he could tell they were upset. So he began dialoguing with them and asking them some questions. And he says, you know, why are you guys so down? What's going on? And, and uh, they says, well, you know, we put our hopes in this Jesus of Nazareth and we followed him. And see, their problem was they thought he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. And, and they said he, the, the Romans arrested him and they crucified him and he died. And, and some women have gone to the tomb and they say it's empty, but we really don't know where he is. We really don't know if we believe all that. And, and we don't know if it's wishful thinking and we're just so disappointed. And, and then G the scripture says in, in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus began to read out of them as, as Isaiah, the word of God. And, and something happened in their spirit and something happened in their heart. And so... So they asked him when they got to their destination, they said, hey, can you come to our house for dinner? And Jesus said, hey, no problem. So he went and he ate with them. At the end of the meal, Jesus broke bread, and they realized this is Jesus. He is resurrected. And Jesus disappeared. And then verse 32, it's just so telling. That's what the scripture says. He says, then they asked each other, the disciples, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Have you ever been reading scripture? Have you ever been studying a lesson? Have you ever been sitting and listening to a sermon and your heart quickens and something happens with inside you? you ever been listening to a sermon and you feel like, oh my gosh, that guy has to been following me around. He's been in my home. He's been in my workplace. He's, how did he know all this? You ever been reading scripture and your heart quickened you said, man, I know that scripture's just for me. You ever been in a service and even though there's hundreds of people in the room, you feel like it's just you and God? That's how, that's how they were. I mean, the, pa the time passed so quickly, they were disappointed, they didn't want it to end. because of what happened inside of them. And that's why Jesus said, blessed are those who thirst and hunger after righteousness.
for they will be filled. See, the world tells us this. Blessed are the rich, the proud, the self-confident, because they'll get ahead in life. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's more than this, this world. The world tells us, tells us blessed are the funny, the lighthearted, the positive thinkers, because they'll be popular in life. But Jesus said, blessed are those who are genuinely sorry for their sins. I will comfort them with grace and forgiveness. The world says, blessed are the independent thinkers, the assertive. They will gain respect from people and they'll be powerful. Jesus said, blessed are the meek who humbly submit their strengths to my authority. They will inherit the earth. The world says, blessed are those who hunger for success. The type A personalities who are ambitious enough to make their mark in this world. But Jesus said, blessed are those who are hungry for a relationship with me. Because it's only in a relationship with me that they will be filled. Everything this world has to offer you will leave you empty and wanting more. And Jesus says, I'll save, I'll forgive, and I'll give comfort. 